Such a good morning. So glad to be here with you. Um, as we begin, I want to take just a minute to thank my friend Jeff for stepping in last week as the elders stepped away for our annual elder retreat. And we hope to share some of those things that we walk through together with you in the coming weeks and months. Um, but as many of you know, Jeff is our executive pastor here at Melanie Park. Um, probably a better description is he is our etc. pastor. Because there's not much that goes on around here that he doesn't have uh, some involvement in. And so I understand, as the teaching pastor, it's no small task to step in when you're doing things like he does on a given week and prepare a sermon. But I have confidence when Jeff makes that commitment, it immediately becomes his highest priority. He really does want to sincerely handle God's word with integrity, and with accuracy. And so I appreciate you, Jeff, for your faithful service, not just on what you do when you stand behind this pulpit, but what you do every day in the life and ministry of this church. And so I'm just I'm grateful for that. Um, with that being said, I want us to revisit something that Jeff said last week that I just need to clean up for him. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, that's not true. I do want to, revert. I want, to, I want to revisit something that is worth repeating. When we talked about in those final verses of the unshakable kingdom of God. Now you've heard me share this little statement of truth with you before, but I want to walk through it again together and recite it with each other. I want you to listen as I read it to you first. It says this, I am one in, Christ, in whom Christ dwells, and delights. I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. That's a powerful truth, isn't it? So let's recite that together, if you would. Let's say it in unison. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble. And neither am I. Well, that's really important. Not only for us, but it was really important in the life of the church that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. They were being persecuted, as we've mentioned several times, for their belief in Jesus Christ. And what was happening around them as many of their friends and some of even their own family had, had abandoned the faith, choosing to blend into society rather than stand firm in their convictions of their faith in Christ alone. And maybe like some of you, they were weighed down by worry and even beginning to question and doubt. So the author is trying to encourage them to stand firm, helping them see that their enduring faith is evidence of a true and saving faith. Finding complete Fulfillment in Christ is the key to contentment in life, no matter what the circumstances might be. And the author really wants to impress this upon us as we look at the words of our passage this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, the one who loves and speaks to us through the truth of his word. 
the power of His Spirit that resonates deep within us as we hear of Your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Father, we are easily distracted by the things going on around us. I'm sure that there are people here this morning who feel the weight of worry or doubt or fear. Father, I pray that they can come to You this morning those who are heavy and laden burden, and that in you they will find rest. That they will hear you say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. Father, help us to see that clearly through our passage this morning and to, to understand the importance of finding our complete fulfillment in you. So that we can then find contentment in life no matter what's going around us. So Lord, we entrust this to you as we open the truth of your word. Speak into our lives. We are listening. Amen. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Pick up where Jeff left off last week. And uh, if you would follow along with me as I beginning, begin reading in verse 1. Chapter 13. Verse 1, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never, I will never forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This morning, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach as we unpack the truth of our passage this morning. I don't think I've ever done this before, but I'm hopeful that it'll be helpful this morning. If nothing else, for those of you who normally sleep during the service, maybe it's enough of a change that it'll capture your attention. It'll captivate you, right? But what I want to do is I want to do these verses in reverse order. I want to start at the end and work our way to the beginning. And the reason I think that's important and could be valuable for us this morning is because what we see here at the end is the basis and the foundation of everything that precedes it. So if you would, look at the middle of verse 5 with me, and let's start there. Here's where the author quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, where it says, God speaking, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now we know in that context that these are words spoken by God to the Israelites at a critical moment in their history. Moses is nearing the end of his life and now it was time for the, the Israelites to move into the land of promise. But they knew, as did Moses, that he would not be going with them. And for this generation, there had never been a time in their life where Moses was not leading the way. And so God assures them, don't be afraid. I am with you. I will lead you. The author follows that quote with another one in verse 6, which is taken from Psalm 118. 
It's a similar assurance when David proclaims, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And then there's this rhetorical question and when he says, what can man do to me? The implication being nothing. So in the midst of their worry and doubt, the writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews is saying, God's got this. He's got you. He is in your midst. He is with you. He will never leave you, no matter how much difficulty and struggle you may be experiencing in this moment. Instead of looking at the circumstances around you, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame. Now we know that he is seated at the right hand of God. Because we know that Jesus is the ultimate example of God's faithful love and provision. He wants them to to take confidence, as we talked about in communion this morning, to take confidence in that finished work of the cross. Knowing that their destiny is secure and there is nothing that man can do to take that away. As we see this, the psalmist says, he's your refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Enduring faith flows out. It just comes out of this deep sense of security and contentment that we find in Christ alone. You see, this is the foundation upon which all these other verses flow out of. Look at how this We can see this happen in the beginning there of verse 5 where it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. In other words, don't, don't be overwhelmed by this desire for, for something more. Be content with what you have. Be, be secure with what you have in Christ. Don't let financial security become more important to you than the assurance of your eternal inheritance. Because here's the reality. Money is not eternal. So when we want, if we want to go back to that unshakable kingdom of God and it says that the, the world will be shaken and that there will be things that, like wheat, are sifted through that have no place in the kingdom of God, money is one of those things. So don't set your security in something that is not eternal. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 warns us, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We need to hear this in America today because finding peace through financial security is a meaningless pursuit. It's a false hope. It's a substitute for finding true contentment, true security in Christ alone. Trusting in what we produce instead of relying on what God promises to provide. The, money, the love of money, it, it leads us astray when, when it's the place where we begin to find our value and worth. Finding our identity in what we have, what we wear, what we drive. Money becomes our master when we become enslaved by debt. 
We wander from the faith when we allow greed to grab a hold of our heart. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, a few verses earlier than what we read earlier. He says, for you have brought nothing into the world. So we can't take anything out of it either. Remember, it's not eternal. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But that contentment is only possible if we, try, if we find our true fulfillment in Christ. When his sacrifice, listen to this, when, when his sacrifice becomes the measurement of our value and worth. When my security is not in what I have, but in who has me. See the difference? It's the very same principle as we move on up this passage when we start talking about marriage. Verse 4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. I think what the, the author's trying to do here is just reminding us that marriage is a priority relationship in the eyes of God. He says it's to be honored among all. And I think one of the key reasons that's true is because the marriage covenant is a mirror of the covenant relationship that we have with God. We see that all throughout Scripture, perhaps one of the best is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Listen to what it says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Isn't it interesting as you read this passage how he begins by talking about husbands and, and wives, but then he transitions into this long conversation about the, the bride of Christ, the, the church is the bride of Christ. And when you're looking at that passage, it's even hard to tell where he makes that transition, which should tell us how closely these are connected together. And what they have in common at their core is a covenant relationship. See, marriage is not a contract that says, I'm committed to you just as long as you hold up your end of the bargain. Now, we see that very prevalent in our world today, do we not? But that is not the words of a covenant commitment. In fact, the wedding vows make that very clear, do they not? They remove all the exception clauses that you might want to put into a contract. On our wedding day, I told Terry, I promise to love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until the Lord calls us home. That's covenant language. And it's a mirror of Christ's self-sacrificing love for us, who loved us even when we were at our worst, which should be the precedent by which we live by in our marriage relationships. See, my 
My contentment in marriage is based on a deep assurance of Christ's love for me. That way I'm not looking for my wife to meet needs in my life that only Christ can fulfill. Nor will I look outside of marriage to satisfy my perceived unmet desires. That's why the author says the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It includes everything from extramarital affairs to premarital sex to homosexuality, even pornography, which plagues our world today. Because all of these defile the sanctity of the marriage relationship created and ordained by God. They corrupt the intimacy that is to be shared between a husband and a wife. They are a rebellion against the beauty of God's original design. Because when Christ is not our source of fulfillment, we will look to others to meet our deepest needs. We will redefine what He has ordained. But when we find our true fulfillment in Christ, it purifies our love for other people. Contentment in Christ gives us the freedom to love others even when we don't get anything in return out of it. That's why we see what we read in verse 3 where it says, remember the prisoners. There's nothing you gain from them. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Here I think the author's talking about the courage to, to enter into hard places, whether that's a prison cell or a hospital room. Places where you can't always alleviate the pain or resolve the difficulty. So all you have to offer is the ministry of your presence. Where you become a visible reminder of God's promise to them. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to be here to help you. The author makes it clear. He's talking about this love that we are to share within the family of God. He says, since you are also, you yourselves are also in the body. The the implication being, this is the responsibility that we have to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, remembering prisoners as though you were in prison with them. So it's the idea of being willing to go to hard places and to, to suffer with those who are suffering. To weep with those who weep. If you see someone hurting, you don't turn the other way because it's an awkward, difficult, uncomfortable situation. You have the courage to enter in and say nothing but to be fully present. If you notice someone missing, you make sure they're not forgotten. So let me just encourage you here. If you look around on a Sunday morning and you say to yourself, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so in a long time. Well, then call so-and-so. Check on them. Make sure they're doing okay. And please understand, that's not my job. That's our job. And I include myself in that. But I'm not solely responsible. We share this responsibility together. But I think sometimes... We can become so preoccupied with our own lives that we don't see the needs 
of other people. Either that or we see it and we just simply choose not to enter in because it's too messy, it's too difficult. We opt for self-protection. But not if your heart is filled with the love of Christ. You are compelled to care for the needs of others as more important than your own. His love just spills out into the lives of those around you. You are compelled by the love of Christ to love those around you. And that includes a love not just for people within your circle, but those who are outside of your circle too. Right? That's the love of the stranger, which he talks about in verse 2. Look at what it says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, in their cultural context, this would have made perfect sense. Because they didn't have these massive hotel chains and, and, and Airbnbs like we see in our world today. In fact, housing for strangers during that cultural context was often filled with immorality and corruption. So if someone entered a town as a stranger, they would be hard-pressed to find a safe place to stay. So the author seems to be calling out to Christians to open up their homes so that that would be the safe place that a stranger could stay. To be willing to, to let them in, leaving room at their table for someone new. And I think most of us agree. When we, when we hear that statement, we would have to look around our lives today and say, that's a lost art. We don't see that near as often in part because I think we have become very protective of our personal space. We have a very limited number of people with whom we are willing to connect. And more often than not, those are people who are just like us. Getting to know someone new has a very limited appeal even in the church. But the author reminds us we may be missing out on a divine appointment. Now, they would have naturally thought about this idea of entertaining angels as they looked at the life of Abraham and Sarah because we know that they left room at their table, right? They invited these strangers in who happened to be angels sent by God. And I'm not saying that couldn't happen in our lives today. In fact, I've heard some stories where I can't argue to the contrary. But I think there's a broader principle in mind here. It's the idea that when we follow Christ, there are no accidental encounters. God is still, don't miss this, God is still in the business of making divine appointments. But in order to see those appointments, you have to have room in your schedule. You got to leave a place at your table. Hospitality is not something that we can possibly fulfill when we live life on the run. Which, I'm the first to admit, I find myself doing very often. How can we invite someone to our table if we rarely sat down to, to share a meal together? There has to be a rhythm of how we are living life together in our own families and along with our church family. 
That way we're inviting people into a fellowship that already exists within our home and within our church. That's why the author says in verse 1, let the love of the brethren continue. That's the normal rhythm that we should all be involved in. And then, and only then, does he follow it by saying, oh, and have hospitality for the stranger. Be willing to invite them in. He's not telling us to start some new ministry. He's just telling us to live life normally and then just invite others into that with you. Don't make it complicated. But once again, none of this is possible without finding our complete security and contentment in Christ alone. His self-sacrificing love has to break through our need for self-protection. His covenant love must be the basis, the framework of our covenant commitments. Because apart from Christ, our marriages will never be satisfying. Because they were never intended to be apart from Him. Apart from Christ, our jobs will always be disappointing. They simply cannot provide what only He can. Apart from Christ, people will be an unwelcome interruption into our very busy lives. So let me encourage you to to consider some of the very practical applications of what we see being called out in our passage this morning. And so I want to just ask you some questions based on what we read together. And I'm just going to give you a little moment to just pause and reflect. Let the truth of Scripture sink into your heart and go before the Lord in that silence and see what he might have to say. Here's the first question. What brings you more peace? The health of your retirement package or the promise of an eternal inheritance? Be honest with yourself. At the end of the day, what brings you more peace? Financial security because of what you have or eternal security Because of who has you. If you're married. In your marriage. Do you look to your spouse. To meet needs only God can fulfill. In your marriage. Do you look for your spouse. To meet needs that only God can fulfill. Value. Worth. Purpose. And then finally, do you have room at your table? And and maybe the question to ask even before that is, do you have space in your schedule? Sometimes we have room at our table. We just don't have any space in our schedule. And I I want you to know, I'm, I'm not asking you these questions to make you feel guilty or feel like you need to try harder, do better. Our passage makes this clear, okay? Don't miss this. These are the things that flow naturally out of a heart that has ultimately found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ alone, okay? These are not things you have to work to do. They are natural outcomes of a walk with Christ. So the only way to love your spouse, the only way to be happy in marriage is to pursue intimacy with Jesus Christ. That has to happen first. 
We love others out of the overflow of Christ's love for us. In the end, we find complete fulfillment in Christ as the basis of contentment in every aspect of our life. We have to start there. And then everything else falls in place. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I I would just ask that as we hear these words from Scripture this morning, that they will resonate in our lives as true. That the authority of Your Word would speak into our hearts. And that it would, as Brian said, reshape how we live, what our priorities are, what we give our attention to. Lord, help us to not look for things in our marriage that only You can supply. Lord, protect us from becoming so busy that we don't have space to to fit others in. Whether that's our own people or the stranger who needs a safe place to enter in. Father, You have loved us with an enduring love. You have reached out to us. We were once strangers and aliens. And You invited us in. So Lord, may all these things just be a natural overflow that we would be compelled to consider the needs of others as more important than our own, that this is who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. May it be so. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I want that to be true for all of us, that our soul is satisfied in him alone, that he is the wellspring of our soul. Reminds me of the passage in Jeremiah that talks about the Israelites, when they had access to a fountain of living water, but they were relying on broken cisterns that could hold no water. And I don't think we're much different from time to time. So maybe we, you should ask yourself this week, what are the broken cisterns that I'm relying on? I know in our region group, I've shared with our guys recently how I so desire to be fully satisfied in Christ alone. But if I look at my life, there's a lot of things that I fill it with that might be spaces where he might more easily speak into my heart. Simple things. Like when I'm driving, I turn on sports talk. Or I'll listen to a podcast. When I'm sitting at a, spot, a stoplight, I might pick up, my, pick up my phone or just killing time, social media and scrolling through things. And what I found when I evaluated my life was, man, there's a lot of free space that are filled with broken cisterns. And I'm thirsty for living water. So what does that look like for you? Maybe this week examine your own heart and ask the Lord to speak into your life. Let me pray for us. And then if you have interest in the Israel trip, let's just stay in this room. I'll need to go to my office and get some things for you, but uh, we'll just meet in here. So uh, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. It is, you are the spring of living water and it's available and you're calling us to drink deeply so that our soul is satisfied in you. So perhaps, Lord, this week you would help us to see the broken cisterns that we often rely on that in and of themselves may not be sinful, although sometimes they are. And and we allow them to to take up the space that you could use to speak into our lives. And so, Lord, just help us to, to long for you this week. 
May our soul be satisfied in you. May we drink deeply from the fountain of living water. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.